Um, I'm delighted to introduce um, the doyen of speechwriters and, and people who train people how to do this better, uh, Max Atkinson. I won't embarrass Max by listing his long uh, credentials. There's no need to do so for this audience uh, anyway, but it encompasses lots of distinguished places um, and lots of great moments. Um, not least, once upon a time, a speechwriter for Lord Ashdown, who I happen to think is one of the more, most underrated uh, political speakers of my lifetime. I think a very good political speak, uh, speaker. Um, and a very big part of that was because he had a very good speechwriter behind him. Um, as we saw anyone who ever saw the famous World in Action um, program about how you can take an unknown person and, and through the gift of technique, turn them into an effective speaker. Um, that was Max, who was, who was behind that. Um, until recently, with the publication of The Art of Speeches, uh, Max had written... <laughs> 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 um, that's, my, that's my way of uh, giving you a plug, Max, whilst also... <laughs> but Lend Me Your Ears is a book I learned a lot from. Uh, it's a book I referred to when I was writing. I'm sure many others have... Uh, to. Max is going to talk to us uh, on the title of What's the Difference Between a Speech and a Press Release? Max, thank you. Well, thank you. The most depressing thing, really, is the, the programming you refer to it took place nearly 30 years ago. And uh, what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about, uh, very briefly, about how things have changed in the last 30 years with regards to uh, political speech making. Um, and in the first, first instance, I'm going to show you three fairly famous examples of major uh, politicians making party leader speeches. And you'll know them all, says he, hopefully. Um, and the first one is Margaret Thatcher in 1980 when she had the problem that um, what she really wanted to say was no one is going to make me change my economic policies. She actually did it with a contrast, surprise, surprise. But interestingly, the first part of the contrast gets more applause than the second part, which is the famous bit. Just waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> the ladies not for turning. <laughs> so in those days, uh, an observer of political speeches had the advantage of being able to see an audience and to hear an audience and to see them taking parts and to see that the speaker was speaking with passion and was getting a response, which also happened in the next example, which is David Steele.
and to show political neutrality, we now have a wonderful example from Neil Kinnock, in which there's not only um, audience positive reaction, but also one member of the audience shouting liar, and another member of the audience uh, leaving, the, leaving the hall. I'll tell you what happens with impossible promises. You start with far-fetched resolutions. They then get all into a rigid dogma called, and you go through the years sticking to that, outdated, misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs, and you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own I knew I had one bullet in the gun, and I hit the target. Liverpool councillors were furious. Liars shouted Derek Hatton. Eric Hepper, the veteran Liverpool MP, didn't want to hear anymore, and he stopped out of the hall. So in the good old days, political rallies were really quite lively occasions. And if you wrote strong lines that got applauded, you could be pretty sure that they would get selected for showing on news programmes. But things have changed rather a lot, and what I want to know, really, and I'm hoping somebody here will be able to answer me this question, is why things have changed. Um, because we now have uh, quite a marked change in, in the, the, the delivery and particularly the staging of political speeches. Um, so we now come forward 30 years to the year uh, 2012, and here we have uh, David Cameron speaking uh, just after the election, coalition hasn't yet been formed, um, and curiously, he's speaking in front of a window. So behind him is a window, and it's not actually clear that there's an audience there at all. There is some distraction in the background. This general election, the Conservative Party gained more seats than at any election for the last 80 years. I'm incredibly proud, not only of the strong result that we achieved, but of the strong and positive campaign that we fought. It feels like shouldn't the current Tories listen to some of this stuff and take note. <clears throat> it's quite, quite interesting. But again, showing political balance is about the same time, Nick Clegg. This government is going to be unlike <laughs> This government is going to transform our politics. <laughs> <laughs> And in keeping with my normal practice of showing political balance, a few months later, after Ed Miliband had been elected the new Labour leader, he chose to make a speech from the Oxo Tower. It was very interesting scenes of the River Thames immediately behind <laughs> various lorries and boats. And <laughs> However, Politics can always make a difference. <laughs> I mean, I know it's very sad, but as a blogger, I sort of sit there just gasping at this stuff. The system is broken. And wondering what's, what's happening, why are they doing it? Um, because what seems to have happened is that the politicians of today have chosen to neutralise or kill off much of the passion that was given <coughs> in speeches and to give it to very peculiar audiences. And this now brings me forward in time um, 
photo. Have we just seen a picture of Cameron? Yeah. 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 Which is still, I can get a video. And that picture of Cameron was from about 10 days ago, and I missed him, unfortunately. He came to Bridgewater in Somerset to Morrison's Distribution Centre. <laughs> and this is the second Morrison's Distribution Centre. <laughs> leading Tory has spoken in the, last, in the last two months. Because earlier, uh, last month, was, David, uh, was Osborne giving his Estuary English speech, that is widely noted, in a very interesting setting, um, giving a very important speech on the benefits situation. And as you'll see, there is an audience there, but they don't actually seem all that interested, and they certainly don't produce any applause. <clears throat> it penalises those who try to do the right thing, and the British people badly want it fixed. We agree, and those who don't are on the wrong side of the British public, because we've done the hard work. <laughs> So they announced when it was going to happen. <clears throat> and of course, being as sad as I am, I was waiting to see when it came on television. But it took me about an hour and a half to find out where and when it was happening. Um, and it turned out it had already happened. It had happened at 8.30 in the morning at the headquarters of Bloomberg, an American company, in London. And it wasn't at all clear that there was any audience there at all. It was February. There was no sneezing, no blowing noses, no <coughs> coughing. And again, so I've got coughing now. <laughs> it's funny. So we really left wondering, was there anybody there? And the effect on the speakers themselves is not an interesting. Cameron, as we've heard, and I absolutely agree, is an exceptionally good speaker in British political contemporary terms. He's not bad at all. But in this speech, you'll hear, it doesn't actually deliver it very well. And I was left wondering, did he even read it aloud before the speech gave out? Did he practice going back to what the, the speaker said? Because you begin to think, maybe he didn't. There was certainly no applause uh, or enthusiasm shown by the audience, if there was an audience left. <clears throat> now, my strong preference is to enact these changes for the entire European Union, not just for Britain. But if there is no appetite for a new treaty for us, and if there is no appetite for a new treaty for us, or for us all, then of course we <laughs> would be ready to address the changes we need in a negotiation with our European partners. So there we are. Uh, practices? God knows. Was there anyone there? Well, of course there was someone there, because there were masses of people from the media busily taking notes. Uh, because they don't have to show excerpts of what they've just seen on various media outlets. But the thing that worries me is that, you know, we've already had several speakers talking about conveying passion, speakers being passionate, and <coughs> involving audiences. 
we seem to have some politicians at the moment whose main aim is to avoid doing both those things. Killing off the passion from their own speeches and not having audiences who are likely to take any notice at all of what they're talking about. And my, I've read three questions, of course, I've had three questions to end with. <coughs> the who question, the why question, and the what question. What question? First of all, who is it that's come up with this idea that making speeches in front of windows, in front of neutral audiences, is a good idea? Um, the why question, why on earth do they think it's a good idea? Um, what? What the hell do they think they're trying to achieve? Okay. Max, let, let me um, start off with an answer to those. Um, I think what they're trying to do is to do speeches for television. I think that's essentially in a, you know, the answer. Is that when um, Kennett was delivering that speech and Thatcher was delivering that speech, they firstly they had serious problems to address, which, which is the source of the passion. I mean, you would not wish upon a Labour leader that the, the opportunity to make that speech again because he, he was only passionate because it was such a moment of desperation for the Labour Party, producing that brilliant speech. Um, but those speeches now are essentially for the public, filtered through television. I think another thing, too, is that spectrum scarcity has made a huge difference. There would have been speeches like that once upon a time. Roy Jenkins would have gone out in Stetchford and done a speech like that, but it wouldn't have been on TV. You'd never have heard of it. He might have released a bit of it. It might have been a press release. But now, the coverage, we, we actually get more coverage of political speeches than we've ever had before. And as you can see, most of it isn't up to it. Now, whether that's because they're worse now than they were, or whether it's just there's more of them, I suspect it's the latter. I've written before about the tyranny of the diary on every minister, and it's true in the corporate sector too, that you have so many engagements and you haven't got enough to say to stretch over them. Whereas Gladstone and Disraeli would speak three times a year, and they'd speak for three hours, and they'd learn it, and it would be a really big moment. So I think those are some of the reasons why. But I agree, it's bloodless and... The, the Windows thing, though, I mean, I mean, I know why they do it, but I agree with you, it doesn't work. They do it because they think it's a better picture. It's as simple as that. So, is it the politicians or their aides? No, they, they're employing, I mean, actually, specifically, George Osborne, on that precise thing you showed, had employed a producer from the BBC the week before, and she set him up with a whole series of wide-angle pictures I mean, that was a close-up, but the, actually the coverage on TV, he looked like he was in some, some sort of computer game where he was at the front and there was this huge angle. And it was all about the pictures because they've come to think that the, the visual image is, is at least as important as anything they say, given that nobody's listening. Um, let, me, let me throw it over to you for thoughts and, and questions. Yes. Um, Max, is the, I think the snakes and ladders theory is one of yours. Yes, yeah, it's taking you a bit seriously. To, to recap, the idea is that politicians can use a speech to go up a ladder and an interview sends them down a yeah. Do you think perhaps that's what they're trying to do? What do they think this is? Well, rather than making an announcement on Europe by doing an interview with you know, a top journalist, they're simply making a speech. And that is the quickest thing they're doing it, like they've done there. Well, I can see that this is safer. It's safer than an interview. Um, but do they think it's more interesting? Because, you know, making a speech to an empty room 
or at least to room with people who don't care, mm. which seems to be the case in almost all the later examples mm. I showed, um, seems totally pointless, which is why the title that I was given was, um, is, it, you know, speech, is this a speech or a press release? Because it seems to me what we've now got is politicians who go out reading press releases uh, and, and if that's the case, I'm taking your point about the, you're right about the television audiences. <clears throat> I have a competition at the moment, I haven't time to go into reading all the results out there. It's on my blog, I have a competition to name a daft venue. For which there are the usual prizes. Uh, I shall be announcing this result probably tomorrow uh, at this rate. But uh, I, I have had one or two interesting entries on, on that, that programme, which, and one of them, Going back to the television thing, one of them, a very good one, I think, says, Why don't they just go to a TV studio and make it to a camera? Read the speech out to a camera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tim first and then the <laughs> uh, Max, what did you make of televised lead debates? Um, what did they tell us concerning the view Well, it's interesting how little the experts have come up with on the back of those, isn't it? And I, I think. Going back to the snakes and others theory of communication, I think it's all part of that. Um, they think it's better to do interviews and speeches, etc. Um, I actually thought that I don't think that Clegg did as well as he was cracked up to have done. And I think we may have discussed this at a previous conference, but I actually think that what why there was Clegg mania for a few days was because it, he was introducing himself to the public. Third-party leaders always have the problem that nobody knows who the hell they are. So until they fought an election, they're, in, they're, they're enormous. So that was the first time the British public actually got to know who Clegg was. And after that, his ratings fell. And by the time the election came, they were nowhere. So I, 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 I don't, I don't, think, I don't <laughs> think interviews solve the problem. The TV didn't solve the problem. Um, and nor do I suspect that they'll necessarily survive. Yeah, my observation on the why those locations, I would say, is just that you've got to you've got to create an event to create a news story that gets the message out. So you contain it as narrowly as you possibly can, and then once you've got the message out, you can <coughs> tweet the highlights, you can send out emails to your constituents <coughs> or whatever, you use it through as many different media vehicles as you can. But you've got to have that occasion that is the news story at the heart of it. Yes. Uh, Oh, sorry, you've not come in, but yeah. But, yeah. Um, just observation of all the things about camera and speech. <coughs> there was at least Stevens Club, just on the other side of uh, the park, um, looking out backwards. And uh, I actually met the events manager there. And he said how bilaterally to Tory central office to send an hour beforehand. And all hell broke loose and they started <coughs> re- reorganising chairs and setting up podiums. And some clever soul from the Tory central office said, there's a tree, that looks nice, stick the podium there. <laughs> <laughs> Side of the room, there are some, there's some beautiful um, sort of wooden panelling and some very elegant oil paintings, and that's the backdrop. Would work much better, would look much more like Prime Minister and Waiter, but obviously it will spread out of control. The other observation I would make is that in the earlier party committee speeches done at um, conferences, uh, is the camera angle. Now, I know they stand on stage. But the camera's down here, it's looking up, and it instantly gives authority. Because you know, you can see from the very angle that the speaker is talking, speaking outwards, as opposed to just staring down the barrel. You've got no idea, as you say, whether there's anybody else in the room. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing to, to remember, too, that is politics has become more disciplined and professional. Mm-hmm. 
So they used to have a week of free coverage on TV and throw it all away fighting each other. Now, nobody's <laughs> going to do that anymore. You're going to present an ordered uh, idea of yourself to the public, and if you were a political professional, it makes no sense to do otherwise. So you do try and shepherd dissent away into the, into the fringes, and it's, it's sort of a natural thing to do, really. I mean, what, what else is a political professional going to do? Say, oh, let, let's have all our fights on, on TV. Which is one of the most extraordinary things about the Conservative Party now. It's determined to have all its fights. If you want to say to them, no, you're on telly. You know, <laughs> you've just said that out loud. <laughs> Philip. Uh, Matt, take back the title of your talk, The Difference Between Speech and uh, Press Release. It does seem to me that the clips you've shown, except for the two examples, two exceptions, uh, Kenneth and... Uh, um, they are simply spoken press releases because they seem to have forgotten the purpose of the speech, which is not to transmit context. The purpose of the speech should surely be to bring about change. And those speeches, the current speeches, are, are not about bringing about change. That fight is almost irrelevant whether there is an audience there or not. It's simply transmitting content for you to pick up at later date and make judgment on. But they're not trying to make change. Well, I suppose it's, it's all part of life's rich pageant, and I just have to accept that things have changed in a way I don't like. <laughs> um, it would be very difficult for anybody who tries to write a sequel to, you didn't mention this one, uh, to Our Master's Voices. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a challenge. Which um, was entirely based on Amazing's kind of stuff. So times have changed, they do change, and I should join on. Okay. I'm going to take three more comments, and I want to take them all together. Um, and then Max one word at the end and the, and the three that, that got in there were the two of you at the back and then you sir. Uh, do you want to start? Yeah, thank you so much um, this, this very cramped way of speaking you know, is, is, is there a, a contra um, movement in speaking by the neighbouring parties the third party, the fourth party in the UK, and the party and something that they use other tricks, other ways to, to speak to the audience to not be similar with this very, very fabric, perfectized way of speaking. Do you see some development in that or in other countries that people tend to, to get loose of this very safe way of uh, bringing things forward? Okay, and who's across the way? Mine was a, a question really for the rest of the room. Am I the only one in here who finds this trend absolutely spine chillingly frightening? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I mean, it just seems like it's more government, not just for television, but by television. And uh, it's just one step closer to Winston Smith's information screen. I'm going to put on my tinfoil helmet now. <laughs> <laughs> with, with that cheery thoughts? So. Max, isn't this all we're seeing is a transition over 30 years into a digital world? We now get emails from the Prime Minister, as I'm sure everybody in this room lives in this country. And my wife is more likely to open that email and read it than watching any of this stuff. I didn't get one. I didn't get one. Well, that's fine because you don't follow on to the answer. You're probably right. And, uh, it feels that way. The only question I, 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 are other party leaders doing things differently? I don't think they are. We seem to have incredible conformity in the UK. <clears throat> As for what's happening in other countries, I simply don't know. Although I still 
envy the United States in that they still have a, a political system where it still counts to make a good speech, and you can actually still become president by making a good speech or two. Uh, so I think, so I, I don't think it's a bend difference here, I think uniformity. And as for the spine showing me uh, uh, scared, I agree also with that. This, like a, another of my recent rants, um, my, my question was, should it worry me? I think it should. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably reasonable to say that Nigel Farage is doing things a bit differently. Um, but I think he can do that because you can indulge yourself if you're a very small party. You can be direct and authentic if you're only pitching for a small part of the electorate. And the reason I don't find it frightening, I do find it dispiriting, but I don't find it frightening, is that I think the reason for passionless speeches is mostly because all the politicians are appealing to a small fraction of the electorate. The electoral system makes them do that. So I think and the, the, and the fear doesn't come from the lack of passion. The fear comes from the lack of direct engagement with the public and public forum. When I think of uh, Tony Blair's famous embarrassment where he was slow clapped by the Women's Institute, yeah, that was a huge screw you to power, nationally publicized, yeah, and we don't get that anymore through this kind of control. Now, not that it was anything more than a futile gesture, but we have this outrageous, this, Ill, you know, ill-mannered sterility. <laughs> it just seems to me, uh, you know, um, fanatic degrees of control. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, now, Max, you, you played um, Margaret Thatcher there, and there's, a, there's another famous speech you did when she was. Uh, Told by her team that Monty Python was Monty Python was very funny, and she did a version of the dead parrot sketch. There is, you know, this is an ex-parrot. It is no more. It has ceased to be, and she'd never seen it. So her team had to play it to her, and she watched it totally stony-faced, and she had no idea why it was funny. And then she said, "Is it funny?" And they said, "Yes, it's funny. Just trust us. You just say it." So she delivered the speech at her conference um, speech that this is an ex-parrot talking about the Liberals. And um, she got the laughs. And at the end of the speech, she came off the stage and she said to John Whittingdale, who was a, a private secretary, said, this Monty Python, is he one of us? <laughs> and now for something completely different. Bob, <laughs> 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 